Greetings, Darklings, and welcome to Once Upon a Terror. I am your host, Adelina Hill, and I have two short stories for you this evening. I have been recovering again from another cold, and if I had to count how many times that I have recorded an episode where I'm sick, it would be way too many. But let's start the show, Once Upon a Time. The first story I have for you is called August Heat by William Fryer Harvey. I have had what I believe to be the most remarkable day in my life, and while the events are still fresh in my mind, I wish to put them down on paper as clearly as possible. Let me say at the outset that my name is James Clarence Withencroft. I am forty years old in perfect health, never having known a day's illness. By profession, I am an artist, not a very successful one, but I earn enough money by my black and white work to satisfy my necessary wants. My only near relative, a sister, died five years ago, so that I am independent. I breakfasted this morning at nine, and after glancing through the morning paper, I lightened my pipe and proceeded to let my mind wander in the hope that I might chance upon some subject for my pencil. The room, though door and windows were open, was oppressively hot, and I had just made up my mind that the coolest and most comfortable place in the neighborhood would be the deep end of the public swimming bath when the idea came. I began to draw. So intent was I on my work that I left my lunch untouched only stopping work when the clock of St. Jude struck four. The final result for a hurried sketch was, I felt sure, the best thing I had done. It showed a criminal in the dock immediately after the judge had pronounced sentence. The man was fat, enormously fat. The flesh hung in rolls about his chin. It increased his huge, stumpy neck. He was clean-shaven, Perhaps I should say a few days before he must have been clean-shaven, and almost bald. He stood in the dock, his short, clumsy fingers clasping the rail, looking straight in front of him. The feeling that his expression conveyed was not much so one of horror as of utter, absolute collapse. There seemed nothing in the man strong enough to sustain that mountain of flesh. I rolled up the sketch, and without quite knowing why, placed it in my pocket. Then, with the rare sense of happiness which the knowledge of a good thing well done gives, I left the house. I believe that I set out with the idea of calling upon Trenton, for I remember walking along Lytton Street and turning to the right along 
glittered road and at the bottom of the hill where the men were at work on the new tram lines. From there onward I have only the vaguest recollection of where I went. The one thing of which I was fully conscious was the awful heat. That came up from the dusty asphalt pavement and as almost palpable wave. I longed for the thunder promised by the great banks of copper-colored cloud that hung low over the western sky. I must have walked five or six miles when a small boy roused me from my reverie by asking the time. It was twenty minutes to seven. When he left me, I began to take stock of my bearings. I found myself standing before a gate that led into a yard bordered by a strip of thirsty earth where there were flowers, purple stock, and scarlet gerarium. Above the entrance was a board with the inscription, C.H.S. Atkinson, Monumental Mason, Worker in English and Italian Marbles. From the yard itself came a cheery whistle, the noise of hammer blows and the cold sound of steel meeting stone. A sudden impulse made me enter. A man was sitting with his back towards me, busy at work on a slab of curiously vain marble. He turned round as he heard my steps, and I stopped short. It was the man I had been drawing, whose portrait lay in my pocket. He sat there, huge and elephantine, the sweat pouring from his scalp, which he wiped with a red silk handkerchief. But though the face was the same, the expression was absolutely different. He greeted me smiling, as if we were old friends, and shook my hand. I apologize for my intrusion. Everything is hot and glary outside, I said. This seems an oasis in the wilderness. I don't know about the oasis, he replied, but it certainly is hot, as hot as hell. Take a seat, sir. He pointed to the end of the gravestone on which he was at work, and I sat down. That's a beautiful piece of stone you've got a hold of, I said. He shook his head. In a way, it is, he answered. The surface here is as fine as anything you could wish, but there's a big flaw at the back, though I don't expect you'd ever notice it. I could never really make a good job of a bit of marble like that. It would be all right in a summer like this. It wouldn't mind the blasted heat, but wait till the winter comes. There's nothing quite like frost to find out the weak points in stone. Then what's it for? I asked. The man burst out laughing. You'd hardly believe me if I was to tell you it's for an exhibition, but it's the truth. Artists have exhibitions, so do grocers and butchers. We have them, too. All the latest little things and headstones, you know. He went on to talk of marbles, which sort of best withstood wind and rain, and which were easier to work with, then of his garden and a new sort of carnation he had bought. At the end of every other minute, he would drop his tools, wiping his shining head and curse the heat. I said little, for I felt uneasy. There was something unnatural, uncanny, in meeting this man. I tried at first to persuade myself that I had seen him before, that his face, unknown to me, had found a place in some out-of-the-way corner of my memory. But I knew that I was practicing little more than a plausible piece of self-deception. Mr. Atkinson finished his work, spat on the ground, and got up with a sigh of relief. "'There! What do you think of that?' he said, with an air of evident pride. The inscription, which I read for the first time, was this. 
sacred to the memory of James Clarence Withencroft, born January 18, 1860. He passed away very suddenly on August 20, 19, in the midst of life we are in death. For some time I sat in silence, and a cold shudder ran down my spine. I asked him where he had seen this name. "'Oh, I didn't see it anywhere,' replied Mr. Atkinson. "'I wanted some name, and I put down the first that came into my head. "'Why do you want to know?' "'It's a strange coincidence, but it happens to be mine.' "'He gave a long, low whistle. "'And the dates?' "'I can only answer for one of them, and that's correct.' "'It's a rum go,' he said. "'But he knew less than I did. "'I told him of my morning's work. "'I took the sketch from my pocket and showed it to him.' As he looked, the expression on his face altered until it became more and more like that of a man I had drawn. "'And it was only the day before yesterday,' he said, "'that I told Maria there was no such thing as ghosts.' Neither of us had seen a ghost, but I knew what he meant. "'You probably heard my name,' I said. "'And you must have seen me somewhere and have forgotten it. "'Were you at Clacton-on-Sea last July?' "'I had never been to Clacton in my life.' We were silent for some time. We were both looking at the same thing, the two dates on the gravestone, and one was right. "'Come inside and have some supper,' said Mr. Atkinson. His wife is a cheerful little woman, with the flaky red cheeks of the country bread. Her husband introduced me as a friend of his who was an artist. The result was unfortunate, for after the sardines and watercress had been removed, she brought poor— a door Bible, and I had to sit and express my admiration for nearly half an hour. I went outside and found Atkinson sitting on the gravestone smoking. We resumed the conversation at the point we had left off. "'You must excuse my asking,' I said. "'But do you know anything you've done for which you could be put on trial?' He shook his head. "'I'm not bankrupt. The business is prosperous enough. Three years ago I gave turkeys to some of the guardians at Christmas.' But that's all I can think of, and they were small ones, too, he added as an afterthought. He got up, fetched a can from the porch, and began to water the flowers. Twice a day, regular in the hot weather, he said, and then the heat sometimes gets the better of the delicate ones. And ferns, good Lord, they could never stand it. Where do you live? I told him my address. It would take an hour's quick walk to get back home. It's like this, he said. We'll look at the matter straight. If you go back home tonight, you take your chance of accidents. A cart may run you over, and there's always banana skins and orange peel to say nothing of falling ladders. He spoke of the improbable with an intense seriousness that would never have been laughable six hours before. But I did not laugh. The best thing we can do, he continued, is for you to stay here till twelve o'clock. We'll go upstairs and smoke. It may be cooler inside. To my surprise, I agreed. We are sitting now in a long, low room beneath the eaves. Atkinson had sent his wife to bed. He himself is busy sharpening some tools at a little oil stone, smoking one of my cigars the while. The air seemed charged with thunder. I am writing this at a shaky table before the open window. The leg is cracked, and Atkinson, who seems a handy man with his tools, is going to mend it as soon as he has finished putting an edge on his chisel. It is after eleven now. I shall be gone in less than an hour. But the heat is stifling. 
It is enough to send a man mad. This next tale is called The Avenging Phonograph by E.R. Punchin. This verdict of suicide during temporary insanity, the mayor had so confidently anticipated that he experienced no particular sensation of relief when he heard the foreman of the jury actually pronounce the words that assured his safety. It simply seemed to him that no other result had been possible. Every single detail of the crime he had arranged with the utmost care and with the admirable mixture of prudence, forethought, and determination which had raised him from a barefooted boy selling newspapers in the streets to be mayor of the town and one of its most prominent businessmen. No one knew of the connection between him and the dead man. Even if any chance suspicion of foul play did arise, he was the last man on whom that suspicion would fall, and his heart swelled within him with the consciousness of his absolute and perfect safety. He looked round the court now, with that decorous expression of subdued melancholy, the tragic death of a fellow citizen required, and he conceived a scorn from those smug, smiling folk whose self-compliance he could so shatter by a word. If I were to jump, just jump, on a chair and say, This man was murdered and I did it, he thought to himself. How they would all stare and stutter. A grim smile touched his firm set lips and he was so confident in his own strength that even he played a little with the idea, picturing the horror and consternation of the crowd before he set the thought aside. The court was clearing now, and he went out with the others, who respectfully made way for his worship. The chemist, whose place of business was next to his own, came and walked by his side, and they chatted in subdued tones about the unfortunate business which had so disturbed the even tenor of the little town's placid life. Frankly, said the mayor, while I do not blame the jury, I consider their verdict much more merciful than just. The chemist agreed. It seemed he cherished a certain resentment against the dead man. He spoke of him rather hardly, and the mayor pleaded mildly for a more charitable judgment. After all, he is dead, he said, and death covers everything. Yes, but the way he took to die, the way of it— insisted the chemist such things may be common enough in great cities but here one feels it as a blot upon us all a stain upon the fair fame of the town he said waving a lean hand in the air it is certainly more most regrettable said the mayor but still no one knows what troubles he may have had but the chemist would not be placated he hints that he wished the jury had brought in a verdict of Self-murder is self-murder, he declared, sawing up and down with his lean right hand, and there can be no excuse for it. Still, the mayor urged with a secret smile, it is possible we do not know the whole truth about the affair. We know quite enough, said the chemist, with severity. Besides, he added, thoughtfully, he owed me nine and seven pence, which I suppose now I shall never get. The mayor agreed that the recovery of this debt was doubtful, and as the chemist turned to enter his shop, he glanced after him with amused scorn. By Jove, he said to himself lightly, I have half a mind to tell him just to see him shiver, the chattering fool, how he would gasp if he knew.
it amused him greatly to think of the look that would spread over the chemist's lean and hollow countenance if he knew the truth and he allowed his mind to play with his fancy for some minutes he went up to his office and answered two or three business letters but he felt he had earned a holiday and he returned home early after dinner which he ate with a keen appetite he sat down with a good cigar and a glass of weak whisky and water and in his mind he went over the whole affair again in the evidence given before the coroner there had been various mistakes and small discrepancies all of which he had noticed with keen interest for example the smart detective fellow had put the time of death at half-past seven while in reality it had been two hours later the mistake had pleased the mayor immensely and showing how even the police could blunder why what chance had they of finding out the truth when they began by making such a mistake as that then again the doctor had sworn that death must have been instantaneous while the mayor knew very well that the dying man had retained his consciousness for some minutes he had lain to look up at his slayer and in fact fast glazing eyes had been a stare of wild amazement not reproach not accusation not anger or threat only absolute astonishment even his victim in the very moment of death reflected the mayor had not been able to re realize his guilt and this thought pleased him so much that he burst into a harsh laugh his wife mild and frightened sat opposite to him engaged as usual with her knitting and the unexpected sound so startled her that she actually spoke without being spoken to this suicide she said is very terrible is it not a stain upon the fair fame of the town he answered mocking the babbling chemist he always permitted himself more license when alone with his wife than at any other time for he knew the awe in which she held him and his imitation of the chemist's town was palpable self-murder is a dreadful crime he said dreadful she agreed she dropped a stitch in her knitting and paused to pick it up dreadful she sighed again and i suppose the dear rector will not permit him to be buried in the churchyard and her amiable and vacant countenance took on an expression of the deepest horror i expect not said the mayor and for the first time in a real desire seized him to tell his secret for there was a latent cruelty in his nature that now was wakening to stronger life and he perceived quite plainly how if he told her she would gasp and shriek before the dreadful knowledge and stare and mutter and presently die crushed beneath its awful weight but he set aside the thought for to speak would be to imperil his own safety he sat in silence sipping his whisky and his thoughts were pleasant what if there was one lay dead branded with the name of suicide self-preservation was the first law of nature and he had merely removed a man whose existence threatened his own even if there was a god a point on which the mayor entertained the gravest doubts surely he must see quite clearly that even by the silly standard of the world the mayor was certainly no worse than anyone else and probably a great deal better than most he finished his whisky yawned and observed that it was bedtime really the day had been more trying than he had quite realized and he felt tired as he undressed he pushed the window open and leaned out enjoying the fragrant sweetness of the night air he was not used to notice such things but to-night he did it all seemed wonderfully quiet and still 
this little town that slumbered there so peacefully in the kindly darkness and then it came into his mind how he could shatter all this peace and serenity by just opening his lips and shouting a certain thing aloud how they would all stir and buzz like an overturned hive of bees a policeman passing by paused to throw the light of his lantern over the house and the mayor called down to him a nice evening tompkins he said anything stirring yes your worship a lovely night answered the man no your worship nothing stirring good night tompkins said the mayor good night your worship replied the man he went steadily on his way and the mayor listened to his heavy slow steps dying away in the disturbance it amused him to reflect how different the man's demeanour would have been if he had only known but he did not know and he never would and there lay the joke and the mayor was so confident in his own strength that again he was able to play with the idea of dropping into the police station and telling them all about it till he fell into a gentle and quiet slumber from which he woke next morning happy and refreshed he felt in extra good spirits and when he got to his office he found intelligence waiting him of the unexpectedly successful completion of some business that would mean a really large sum of money in his pocket if this had only come a week ago he reflected perhaps he might be alive to-day but after all it's well as it is for i remember thought the mayor that he always annoyed me later he went to a meeting of the council and listened to an interminable discussion on the late sad event which had so disturbed our town and cast so dark a stain upon its fair fame this phrase was the chemist's contribution to the lengthy argument about the most fitting successor to the office of the dead man had held some wanted the office that had been so disgraced abolished altogether the mayor listened to it very patiently amusing himself by picturing the different expressions that would come on each man's face if he were to rise and say but all your talk is founded on the belief that this man committed suicide whereas in truth i killed him but this time bored by the long discussion he played with the thought so long that suddenly he was aware of a quick fear lest it should change for an amusement to a necessity he sat upright and called the counsellor just then speaking to order with some asperity and then he became angry and that such an absurd idea should have had power to chill him was so deadly a fear after the meeting was over he walked away with the rector of whom he inquired whether there was not some ancient tale of a king who could not keep a secret and so told it to the reeds on the river bank the rector said there was and told him the story adding that a secret of one guilty nature was great burden there are many i've kept observed the mayor with sudden tightening of his grim lips as he thought of this last one he was keeping so well and how of pale and terrified the rector would look if he told him but the story of this old burden king who in his anxiety for relief from the intolerable burden of his silence spoke at last to the treacherous reeds though it aroused his liveliest contempt it somehow never left his mind he found himself thinking of it intently one day as he stared into the windows of the local bicycle-maker who also dealt in phonographs one of these would have suited the old boy better than his reeds he reflected as he went away and that afternoon he left business early and went for a long solitary walk on the downs above the town a poignant desire controlled his feet and though he said to himself that he would not 
and that he must not presently, he found himself in a position from which he could look down upon the actual scene of the grim tragedy of a few days before. There was the hedge behind which he had crept, and there the ditch in which he crouched, and there was a little gully down in which the dying man had fallen after receiving the fatal blow. "'I killed him,' said the mayor aloud, and he looked around, and then half in fear, up at the broad blue sky above. But the sky remained untroubled, and the earth unheeding. The sun still shone. All nature still laughed with the joy of early summer. From a distance, a rabbit watched him cautiously and nearly by a bird perched on a bush and sang its loudest. "'I killed him,' he said again. "'But, Lord, where is the satisfaction of saying so where no one can hear or make any reply?' Suddenly he perceived that his forehead was damp, and he knew that this was because he had feared what he feared had come to pass." and that what had been an idle fancy indulged in for amusement had now taken on an aspect of necessity. "'But I'll not speak,' he said. "'I'll keep silence.' He struck his hand upon his lips as though he held them treacherous and would chastise them, and walked straight back into town, keeping his teeth tightly clenched all the way. Opposite the bicycle-makers, he paused again, and then went in to inquire about getting a new machine— from bicycles he went on to talk of phonographs, and presently inquired about their cost. It seemed he had some idea of using one in business to dictate his letters into, and he wished to know if he could that could be done. The bicycle-maker assured him that it could, and showed him how, but the mayor seemed ca cautious and hard to please. Indeed, he had not the bicycle-maker been adroit and persistent salesman, the mayor would probably have gone away without making any decision." and, as it was, all he would consent to was that one should be sent up to his house for him to try. It was only a passing fancy. I expect it would be more trouble than it would be worth, he said, and the next day he received with an angry growl that information of the phonograph he had ordered was in his study. But after a time, he went and sat in the study, looking oddly at the machine standing on the table. For long, he sat there, staring down the brass mouth of the recorder, it had been sent up already, so that he knew all he had to do was to speak into the trumpet, as his words would be engraved on the wax, ready to be reproduced and spoken back to him at his will. Presently he got up and locked the door and windows and drew the blind as though they were preparing for an afternoon snooze. Then he went back, and picking up the poker, looked sideways at the machine, as though he were about to break it into some little pieces and yet were afraid it might understand its purpose and defend itself in some way at once unexpected and terrible. The thought at the time was hot in his mind, that if he once told this thing his secret and let it tell it back to him, then once he had heard another voice pronouncing those dread words of guilt and horror, he would no longer have any desire to speak to them. Suddenly, He dropped the poker and began to talk eagerly, swiftly, very softly, and as thus whispered to the machine, with its gulping trumpet ear, a deep peace grew within him, and a sense of certain sweet scrutiny. "'That's done,' he said exultantly, and he jumped up the moment he had finished and rushed to the window. Throwing it open, he leaned out to draw in deep breaths of fresh open air, and only now, by the intensity of his relief, did he understand how great it had been the strain upon him. He remained there for a little, full of his new sense of perfect security. He enjoyed the sensation of relief and the freshness of the air, 
so much that he decided to stroll round the garden before returning to hear the machine talk and then destroying it for ever and with the nightmare of the depression and desire that had lain so heavily on him these last few days he left his study and went into the drawing-room where his wife was knitting emily he said knowing that to her his words were absolutely law i have left out the phonograph on the study table see that no one goes near it very well dear she answered meekly and he was well assured of her obedience are you going to keep it she asked no he answered violently they are silly things stupid troublesome idiotic he abused it angrily for a moment or two deriving a certain pleasure from speaking scornfully of this machine that had witnessed his weakness no he concluded i certainly shall not keep it i'm very glad said his wife i never liked the things i can't think it right how for a voice to be speaking where no one is of course i know it's very clever but i can't think it right for all that well mind you see no one touches it says the mayor he did not usually give reasons for what he told her to do but now he added it is out of order apparently for it won't work properly and i don't want them to be able to say anyone else has meddled with it very well answered his wife obediently i will see it is not touched he heard the renewed click of her knitting needles as he went out and he was certain that she would never dream of disobeying him he walked for a few minutes in the garden feeling an odd pleasure in knowing that his secret was safe in a little wooden box with a sort of trumpet on its top that stood upon a study table it was good to know the secret was there and no longer on his mind and good too to know that in a moment he would return and destroy the box and it together for evermore but when he went back to the study the table was bare and he looked at it for a long time before he went into the drawing-room and standing softly by the door asked in a low tone where the phonograph was oh the man came for it from the shop dear his wife answered as still her knitting needles clicked placidly on i told him you said it was out of order so he took it away he said he could put it soon to rights and he wanted to know if he might bring another one instead the mayor did not answer but he came nearer to her going cautiously holding by the wall and she watched him as deer watches the crouching tiger for it was in his mind that he would kill her and somehow she understood that quite distinctly neither of them spoke as he drew unsteadily nearer and then she leaped up and fled with her ball of wool bounding grotesquely behind her she fled only knowing that she was very greatly afraid but he made no attempts to follow her she never stayed till she reached her mother's house where she spent the night but in the morning she came back arriving just as some men brought in the unpleasantly wet body of the mayor that had just taken from the river from the pool a little below the old mill for my part said the bicycle maker later that day i am certain he was not right in his mind for yesterday night he sent me back a phonograph he said was out of order and when i came to look at it i found it had never been started now said the bicycle maker indignantly can a man be in his right sentence when he talks into a machine without setting it going and then sets it out of order because it makes no record for my part returned the chemist i regard it as a stain upon the fair fame of the town i wonder who the council will appoint mayor personally he considered he had the best right to the position but the bicycle maker expressed no opinion on the subject for his part he thought the builder round the corner his brother-in-law ought to be offered the post as for the late mayor's wife she put up specially fine monument to his memory bearing the text he giveth his beloved sleep later on she married the chemist thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed today's episode because i certainly enjoyed reading these two stories
If you haven't already, please follow the podcast at Once Upon a Terror on Instagram. If you have a story that you would like to submit to be read, please submit it to onceuponaterror at outlook.com. Thanks for listening again. Good night.